This podcast was recorded on the date indicated with the link. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide updates or changes. All right, everybody, welcome to The Sherman Show. I'm Jeff Sherman, along here today with my co-host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And we have a very special guest coming from downtown Los Angeles today. We have none other than Charles Payne. Welcome to the show, Charles. Great to be here. Thanks a lot. Appreciate so, it. So we're going to turn the tables today around on you. We call it other way round, bro, around here. <laughs> and you're usually the interviewer, yeah. right? Today you're going to be the interviewee. And so... Is that uh, why this seat is kind of hot? That's what uh, it is. Yeah. Like that. yeah, we we put those heaters in there because we want to see you sweat. Okay, you know? it's working. And, yeah, and so um, you know, for those of you that don't know, Charles, right? You are uh, the host of Fox Business Network. You have your own show called Making Money. So, what made you start your own show, Making Money? And how did you get in this business? Let, let's let's go through the the life of Charles Payne. Okay, let's go all the way back because it's all kind of important then to to how I got to this particular moment. I had two childhoods. The first childhood, my father was in the army, and it was beautiful. We moved every year, uh, you know, like uh, every year. I was born in New York. My next brother was born in Pittsburgh, then Texas. Then we lived in Germany, back to Pittsburgh, then Japan, then Texas, Alabama, North Carolina, Virginia. And uh, when I was, you know, it was, I, I, it was a wonderful life. But it was interesting because it was also a very guarded, shielded life, living on army bases, particularly in the 60s and 70s. It just it was detached from reality. You remember all of the uprisings and, and you know, I mean, it was, those are really critical uh, years in America. But one day I came home from school and my mom said, we're leaving. So my mom and my dad broke up. Me and my two younger brothers and my mother got on a bus. Uh, we came from Fort Lee, Virginia. We lived in a two-story house. I had my own room. They shared a room because it was huge. We had a guest room. We had a staircase like the Brady Bunch, you know. We go outside, play all day, didn't lock our doors, come home, make a couple of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and go outside and play all day. So it was really just a wonderful life. And then, you know, we left, uh, we left Fort Lee, Virginia, essentially penniless. Uh, we went to stay with a friend of hers uh, from New York in Harlem. All four of us lived in a bedroom, a single bedroom together. And so, you know, it was this sort of instant shock, right, that there was this other world out there that I never even knew existed. And you know, the things that were amazing about it, you know, I mean, just, you can imagine Harlem in the 70s, right? Just, first of all, just coming to New York, getting on a subway train was amazing. The Iron Horse, right? Coming out of it, the music, the energy, uh, you know, I'm hearing music out of, out of cars, out of windows, out of boom boxes. I'm, I'm hearing, hearing Harold Melvin in the Blue Notes, right? And like, who the hell are these dudes? Like, you know, I was rocking Elton John, which is cool, but damn, who is this Harold Melvin dude, right? And, and so all of that was amazing, but the unamazing part or the other part that was really tough was two things, the extreme poverty and the violence. And that was something we were not prepared for. And I was the oldest uh, of the family. I'm the oldest of the family. So uh, I was sort of thrust at, it, at 12 years old into a position of having to help. I mean, all four of us lived in a room. We had no money. So, you know, I would, initially I would do things. I would hustle, get like paper towel, go to a stoplight or red light, clean wind, windshields at red lights. And, 
you know, I got a job at a bodega pretty, pretty quickly. Anyway, I started doing all these things. I would come home and give my mom almost all the money. And for the first time in my life, I had to think about money. I never a single moment in my life even considered money. I, it just was never, didn't never, you know, it was just never came up. And so I just started thinking, of how can I make money? And I think we all at some point equate money with Wall Street, with the stock market. So I said, okay, I started getting the Wall Street Journal. I have to be honest, I used to steal it. <laughs> it wasn't hard, right? <laughs> you, go to the, you go to the newsstand, right? And now if I'm standing near the, the candy, they're like, what do you want? I'm standing near the journal like, uh, don't worry about it. <laughs> so I would just kind of walk up and grab the journal and walk away. And if you guys remember in the 70s how hard the journal was to read, I mean, it's just, it just nothing but lines and numbers. Lines and numbers, lines and numbers, like what the hell is this, right? But after a few months, I started to feel like I was getting it. And, and I really, I, I just started to really fall in love with it. When I was 14 years old, I told my mom I'm going to work on Wall Street. I bought my first mutual fund when I was 17. She had to co-sign because I wasn't 18 from the money I had saved up working all these uh, jobs. I joined the Air Force. I signed up at 17, went in at 18. And at 18 years old, I bought my first stock, uh, which was MCI. And you know, needless to say, I was on my way. I was uh, sort of hooked. That was the precursor to WorldCom, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is before the scandal. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. You know, because what I loved about it initially, the initial story was this guy who was going against the biggest corporation in the world, AT&T. And how was he going after them? He was piggybacking rooftop antennas to, to form a communications company to go against the largest company in the world. I'm a David and Goliath person, right? I mean, here I am, you know, no money, nothing. You know, I just, you know, we have nothing. And so anytime I saw that kind of story, it always intrigued me. So, you know, and it, it did very well. It really did very well for a long time. Then it became, you know, a, a, a part of a, one of the biggest scandals right. at the time, but pre-scandal. It was, a, it was an amazing story, and that's what drew me to it. So tell us a little bit about your time in the military. So I was in the Air Force. Uh, I, I was basic training, and, and my other uh, police training was in, uh, in San Antonio, Lackland uh, Air Force Base. And then my first base was Minot, North Dakota. Uh, and uh, <laughs> if you ever get a chance in the middle of winter, just kind of look at the map when you put the U.S. map up. Four out of five days, Minot or that part of North Dakota is going to be the coldest spot in, in, the, in the continental U.S., even oftentimes colder than Alaska. What makes it even worse is there's no mountains, no hills, no trees, so the wind chill is crazy. So it was tough. You know, there was a saying up there, why not, why not, and the, the answer was freezing to reason. Uh, <laughs> but it was, a, it was a SAC base, which at the time was the uh, Strategic Air Command, so nuclear missiles, uh, all these missiles were aimed for the most part, sort of at targets, mostly at, at Russia. We have a three-pronged security system, you know, in, this, in our country. So we have the missiles, we have the bombers, and then we have the subs. Mm -hmm. And we were trained right out the gate that if we ever went to war with Russia, we probably would die because they know where these missiles are. Everyone knows where the silos are. They're easy targets. They would probably launch a first strike. So, you know, every night we went to bed, it's like, well, if we go to war, we're definitely dead. Um, <clears throat> they did have, if you were on the launch facility itself, there's always two officers really down that theoretically they would send an elevator up to get you. <laughs> <laughs> theoretically, theoretically. I, I'm not sure, you know, hey, you know, the bombs are going to hit in 10 minutes. You want these other people to come down and share the food? <laughs> I'm just saying, okay, everyone, everyone takes the oath, but I'm just saying. You know, it's funny you, you mentioned that too, because I noticed on a sign the other day, uh, I was driving up the, up the 101, you know, going up the California coast for the holidays. And I noticed that Annenberg, it no longer says AFB, it says SFB. And, oh, and all of a sudden, I'm, we're just trying to debate, like, what is that? 
and we kind of stumbled, and I haven't Googled it since, right. I should have, but we just assumed it meant Space Force Base. Does that, does that ring a bell with you? Do you have they renamed the Air Force well, Bases? Yeah, they, they started because we have the Space yeah, Force, yeah, right? Yeah, we do have the Space you Force. Know? I'm not sure that they, I didn't, I didn't know they started to rename them, but yeah. they, you know, it's so interesting because when it came up, it was a, there was a lot of ridicule, and, and now it's like, Everyone's taking it seriously. I yeah. mean, every every everyone well, watching. It seemed like a joke because there was that Netflix show at the same time. Yeah, right? yeah, like, and also know, right? let's face yeah. it, a lot of people were anti-Trump, and he came up. You know, right. he was the one promoting it, right. so immediately people dumped on it. Uh, but ironically, as we're talking, before the day is over, everyone's going to pick this up and send all their most important information into the cloud. What is the cloud really? Right, these satellites uh, that we have to protect. You know, uh, so they're definitely become target number one, like the, the Minuteman bases. So it's a great analogy, a great equ equating those, I think, is, is, is right on, spot on. Yeah, so, so maybe, maybe that's right, maybe it's wrong, but I, I just noticed that, and it's like, because it's California, we just plaster over it. So it looks like, you know, you're just, you're yeah. patching over yeah. the A with an S. Well, initially too, I thought you said it was SBF, like Sam Bankman Freed, like, damn, no. you got the military yeah. too? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you, you never know. It's you California, know, I mean, yeah, I know yeah, everything's yeah, for sale, right. but no. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of that too, so let's talk about the sale, let's talk about business and everything too. So you started off in the business at EF Hutton, right? Yeah. So walk us through how you went from being an analyst and, and working at what was a huge shop at the time, right? to now work in the media and trying to bring, you know, the way I understand it from you is bring financial education to the masses. Right. Um, if that's a fair... It's, you know, it's pretty fair, it's pretty fair. Um, so I got out of the Air Force um, and I had it, my daughter was like a few months old uh, and it was the same scenario. Me and my wife and my daughter lived in a one bedroom apartment in Harlem and, uh, you know, went around trying to get these jobs and applied and got the job at EF Hutton, which was one of the happiest days of my life. 13000 a year uh, before taxes, which was more than I was making. Uh, and then if you, by the way, they had the organizational chart. So if you go all the way down the organizational chart and to the bottom, and then you flip it over, you would find my name. Right. So it was like the lowest of the lowest jobs, but it was great in the sense that I was able to go every day I would ask questions. You know, and you know, people love to help. Yeah. You joke about the org chart. Uh, I actually, and hopefully this isn't offensive to the person <laughs> I had this meeting with. I had one meeting once where it was an introductory meeting and this person walked me through the org chart and everyone's photo was on it as well. And he explained to me over the course of 50 minutes what everybody in this organization wow. did. And he said, do you have any questions? I'm like, no, meeting's done. Like I don't know what we're trying to accomplish here. Yeah, but yeah. To that point, people do look at those orders. They charts. do. Okay. They do. Yeah. So no. Yeah. So you know, I was thrilled to get the job. It wasn't a lot of money per se. You know, but um, I was able to get uh, this education. You know, you go to this particular desk, and what are you doing? Well, we're waiting for the this number to come in or that number to come in, and you know, people were like, hey, kid, come here. Let me help you. Let me show you what. You know. So in that regard, it was you know, it was one of the top firms in Wall Street at the time. And, uh, and so that regard, it was fantastic, but there really was no money. Uh, and, and so I had a chance to go work at a, a small boutique firm. Now the catch was, it was 100% commission. You know, so they would, they would give me three weeks of training and then good luck. <laughs> There's no minimum wage. Right, you gotta right. earn your minimum wage, <laughs> right? right? right. Catch. Yeah. All right. So that was the catch and I went for it. I went for it, and I got to tell you, it was hard as hell. I mean, you pick up the phone, you're like, hi, Mr. Okay. Hi, Mr. You know, so people are just slamming the phones. Because, you know, you go, when, when I got there, they say, here's your phone, and there's some yellow pages in the back. And these things were so old, everyone had used them, right? 
Someone told me early on a good trick, though, was to go after people who had hard-to-pronounce names because everyone else would skip them. So even if you messed it up, at least they hadn't been called 40 million times. But I got another break. Within a week of being doing, of doing this, I, go, I call the guy up. I'm pretty sure he was an attorney. And I read my whole pitch to him. And he says, well, you read well, but what do you want? I explained it to him. He opened an account. After the call, I tore up the pitch. From that moment on, I just talked to people. And um, what happened was with this firm, though, is I loved doing research, you know, from the, even as a kid, right? So my, my, the esteem that I held stockbrokers or in the industry in was shattered because really you were just a salesman selling in-house product. And I didn't realize that. And I thought initially I could buck the trend. Like, you know, I said, nah, I'm not going to sell that in-house crap. I'm going to sell good stuff. So I found a company called Burroughs Welcome. And at the time, they had just gotten approval for this drug called AZT, which is fighting this new disease called AIDS. And I said, wow, this is a beautiful story. And so every new account, I did, after that call with this guy, I opened more new accounts the first month than anybody else in the office. And I opened everybody up on Burroughs Welcome. So payday comes around. And everyone gets their check. You know, people got pretty good checks. They rent limousines. I was like maybe two or three hundred bucks, four hundred bucks. It was really sad. It was pathetic. So at that point, I started selling a house crap. And I never felt good about it, but I started making a lot of money. And so it was this. It was a Faustian deal with, and, you know, to be honest with you, uh, you know, it wasn't the best stock. I wasn't selling people the best stocks. So that was always part of the genesis of why I decided to start my own research firm. That, you know, if I felt like that as a broker, maybe other brokers felt that way. So I had enough money, about 10 grand. I started my own firm. I did the research, wrote the research reports at night, and I was a salesman in the daytime. Back then they had this big giant book, it was the directory of all the brokerage firms. So you can open up the book, every single state, you got the number, you know, and I would often just ask for broker of the day, you know, because that would rotate almost every other, every week there would be a new broker of the day. So you can go through the book and come back around and, you know, it's just started one person at a time, one person at a time. It was tough, you know, it was tough, you know, but it started to build, it started to build, it was tough, it started to build. And soon I was able to get an office on Wall Street, start hiring people uh, and, uh, you know, started to sort of take off. And then at one, one day I get a phone call, CNBC wants you to come on. Oh, okay. Uh, so that was great. How'd that make you feel? Oh, man, that yeah. was phenomenal. That was, it was just like, I was so excited. There was a place I was buying my, um, my clothes at the time. It was called Chabonato. And I went up to Chabonato. I wanted to get a new shirt. And this is crazy. So I get there, and there's about two or 300 people in front of the store. I make my way through the store, and I look in the window, in the glass, you know, and there's Mike Tyson. <laughs> so... You know, I knock on the glass like, yo. So they opened it up. I was a great customer, and they let, they let me in. So now he wants to know, well, who the hell is this that you let in while I was there? <laughs> <laughs> so I said, yo, man, I'm going on national TV. I'm going on CNBC. I need a great shirt, man. You know, you know maybe some new couplings, right? Hook me up. So he says, all right, all right. So in the meantime, you know, they're doing it, running around, getting all the stuff from Mike Tyson. And next thing I know, we started talking. We spoke for about 40 minutes about everything. And what was really crazy, up until that point, I always rooted against Tyson. I always thought he was a little bit too thuggish. I never rooted for him. And so he was done. I was in the back of the store. 
trying on shirts. And I saw he was leaving. I said, all right, Mike, take it easy. So he's at the front door. He turns around. He walks all the way back. So I'm like, oh, man, I thought he was going to, you know, give me, shake my hand or give me five. He hugged me. I felt so bad for him. I really did. I don't know why that happened on that particular day, though. It's so weird. So anyway, I got my shirt, went on CNBC, and, you know, started going on a lot more. You know, they started calling me up and, you know, talking to me. And, and you know, I, I just, I would make sure that every time we talked about something, though, I would slip in there something else that wasn't really on topic per se. Just let them know I had a, a wider breadth of knowledge than maybe they thought. And, and it kind of worked because then they would call me on something else. Hey, last time you were on, you mentioned so-and-so. You want to come on and talk about that? Yeah. <laughs> you know. So it, it kind of worked. Uh, and I started doing them a lot. And then at, at the time, Neil Cavuto was at CNBC. Mm -hmm. So Neil leaves and he goes to this new network called Fox. I think he's out of his mind. I'm like, this dude is crazy. Like, you know, how can you beat CNBC? No one ever heard of Fox. Like, oh. <laughs> so anyway, you know, he goes to this fledgling network. And then one day I get a call from Neil's office. Hey, he wants you to come. I said, oh, to that Fox thing? Oh, boy. All right. I'll come check it out. And I'm like, oh boy. I get there, I go to the basement. It's poorly lit. I swear the table had like three legs. I'm holding one up with my knee, like in it. And the whole time I'm looking at Neil, like, my man, you'd have messed up. You know that, right? <laughs> <laughs> and of course, he hadn't messed up. And I started doing more and more of a Fox. And at one point, I was on Fox, CNBC, CNN, FN. And eventually, Fox came to me and said, hey, you know, um, we'd like you to be a sole contributor to our network. And uh, so I said, oh, great. So it was a paid contributorship. Kind of sounds like our first episode of the Sherman Show, right? We had uh, Professor Schiller on. We had a fold-out like uh, poker table that we're playing on, and <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's a book underneath to level it out. Right. And we had to, we, Schiller brought his own book. That's know? right. It was irrational exuberance. <laughs> I was holding it up, and we tried not to use it, but that, that's all we had. Yeah. We talked we over had, him so. the whole time, you know, and we had no lights either, right? Yeah. So. No, we barely had mics, so yeah. I remember that, but. Um, Going over the Fox, starting out something new, mm -hmm. what, what was your vision in, in creating and making money? And do you feel like you've gotten to that point? Where I'm you've finally getting to that point. I'm finally getting to that point. Um, and how long has that taken? A long time. Yeah. A long time. I was ready to walk so many times. Um, they had just, you know, not, you know they, the management they had there was, was awful. Um, and, you know, it's one thing, like, if you don't know anything about the topic, Right, because most people in financial, in the media, go to school for media. They don't go to school for stock market. You know, the, you know, they don't have the passion. They weren't buying mutual funds at 17. So I, ha I have a passion for this. Uh, and so I also had a frustration when it's not done right. And it's, hey, listen, if you want to do the rest of the network a certain way, but I don't, don't ask me to do certain things a certain way or, you know, try to uh, in, intimidate me or do anything because it's not going to work. And, and so it was really, really frust frustrating, you know, but we've got new management of, uh, for the last couple of years. She's done an amazing job. Uh, we've catapulted above CNBC. And, and now the show is getting to what I want. We're, we're, we're getting closer and closer. I think it's the most unique show on financial TV, in part because I'm really helping people understand. Like, for instance, I love this thing I do on the board with the charts, you know. Because sometimes you'll see on, on there, say, oh, XYZ is up, and then they'll put up a chart. The average person is like, well, well yeah, you know, but what, what am I supposed to be looking at? You know, and it's, it's, you know, and so I have this thing I call chart school, and then I'm doing also what I call fundamental school, particularly now, right, where, 
you know, you, people, the fundamentals matter a lot more now in this market than they did, let's say, a couple of years ago when, you know, when non-profitable stocks are outperforming profitable companies. So I do fundamental school, chart school. I've been doing option school recently, uh, you know, because everyone's buying options. And I've, I've seen this so many times. You have a boom in the market, everyone jumps on, they start losing all their money, and they want to make it back. So now they start, before where they could buy 1,000 shares of XYZ, they can't, so now they buy 100 XYZ calls. Mm -hmm. Out of the money, expire tomorrow. <laughs> you know, they got to make this back, right? <clears throat> and so I'm trying my best to help make sure that, you know, to avoid all of the, right, the pitfalls, right? Make, the, make, this, these, make it less of a casino. And so I'm really thrilled, you know, and um, beat, I beat CNBC the last two quarters. And, you know, we're gaining some amazing traction with the show. I really am happy with where it's going right now. Yeah. And so as you think about that, you know, the educational aspect, and we were having dinner last night, and you read an email out just, you know, of, of yeah. people thanking you for all of that. And I know that's part of what, you, what, what, uh, what drives you to do this. But how do you kind of mesh that also with the ability to bring people on and interview folks, right? Because you, you've got to kind of, you know, still have that other element as well. Or is the goal really to be this more educational platform? The main goal is to get people to invest in the stock market as a lifelong endeavor. That's my number one goal. Uh, that you know, I think the industry. You know, bonds could get some love too, you know, right? <laughs> well, oh, right, I'm right, sorry. Sam? I'm sorry. Absolutely. Sam? I'm Sam? sorry. Absolutely. Stocks and bonds. Okay, By the way, it's not just even investing in stocks and their bonds. You know, the overarching theme is how to, you know, if you want to invest in baseball cards or you know, art or memorabilia just how to get, you know, to change the course of your life uh, by getting your money to work for you. You know, when I first started the show, I used to do a lot more, like I bring small businesses on. I just had a big town hall thing. Uh, it came out great and a bunch of small businesses and experts who, to help in certain areas, you know, so that's all encompassing. It's, you know, this is just my way of, um, that's my own personal niche, but I, you know. I was joking. Yeah, anyway, but no, but you're right though. Right. There's more than one way to yeah. change your life, you know, to, but the goal though is to do it. So many people are intimidated by it, and and they've been deliberately they're deliberately intimidated by it. You know that's what, the, the, that's what the marketing says. That's what they that's what they say on TV. That's what that's what you say inside internally. Uh, you know it's it's you can just hand your money over to a money manager, uh, then everybody's happy. Right? They're going to get their fees. Uh, you know you'll feel comfortable, but something has happened over the last twenty years. That something of a slow-moving epiphany, if you will. It, and it's a two-pronged thing. It's one, people are saying, well, you know, mom and dad did everything right that the money manager said. They loaded up on GE because it was the number one cap, mar largest market cap company in the world. It was phenomenal. They bought IBM. It was the biggest computer company out there. It was phenomenal. You know, they bought Intel. You know, every time we bought a computer, Intel inside. Uh, you know, they bought some energy stocks, you know, Chevron or whatever, ExxonMobil. You know, they did everything by the book. They had a big portfolio of blue chip stocks, and by the time it came for me to go to college, we still had to take out a loan. So the promise wasn't achieved. So people are saying, maybe I could do it myself. And, and of course, you know, there's a lot of, when you do things yourself, there's a lot of trial and error. And of course, when you're talking about investing, and the hits that you take in the, in the process of trial and error, it could be deadly. So uh, I, I applaud people for wanting to do uh, things themselves, no matter what it is. Uh, but, you know, my thing is, hey, maybe you can avoid some of the trial and error this way by the time you feel like you're getting. And by the way, I consider myself a student of the market. I don't, you know, I, I learn every single day. That's my main goal, to learn something every single day. 
and I, and I think anyone who gets involved in the market, I, I have to guess they know everything. <laughs> they figured well, it all out. I think out. they do. They yeah, think they, they figured do, right? it all out. And, it's, and they're not wrong, the market's wrong. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, the good thing is I have a good teacher over here. Sam, <laughs> Sam helps me every single day yeah. and, and yeah. sets me straight. You know? Now, we all try to help out each other on, on our, our team at least, but you know, some of the things that you just mentioned there, it's just trying to instill the sense of uh, financial literacy in especially your children, you know, when you're growing up, you're talking about, you know, your parents doing things the right way. And I remember when I was growing up, my mom never talked about investing in stocks or a way to make money with your money. Right. At best, she'd say, you know, put it in the piggy bank where it's going to earn zero. So, you know, hopefully it's, you know, in the deflationary period or something right. like that. Right. Or you put it in the CD and you basically get close to, to zero at some right. point. So, you know, one thing about your show and just really giving individuals that watch, you know, the tools to potentially avoid some of these pitfalls, but also learn something new is big. And I think it shows a lot uh, in terms of um, what differentiates your show from some of the others is that, uh, you know, you have that, that ability to be, seem grounded and relatable to people as well. But one of the things I want to ask you is just, you know, for, for Sherman and I doing these, these interviews, what are some tips that you could give us or tell us about what makes a good interview. Like, what are some of the things that uh, brings it all together? Because I know it's it's two-way street, right? The the person that you're interviewing has to play ball, right. and we have to uh, conduct ourselves accordingly in order to get the best uh, type of interview out there as well. So, yeah. I, I think I think a lot of people in this era are going for the gotcha moment, which yeah. I think is sort of overrated. Um, again, if the idea is to to inform and educate the audience. Uh, you know, I I try to think about where they're coming from. Uh, yeah, I I don't like bullshit. You know, I don't like the <laughs> the canned replies. Like, I don't know if you last year, for instance, in 2021, when the market started. Uh, we're in 23 now. Yeah, I'm sorry, in 22 years ago. <laughs> By the way, I just put out a tweet that said, uh, Happy New Year 2024, so I'm way off based on everything, right? <laughs> on average, you're good. <laughs> yeah, on average, you're right, right? Yeah. So, yeah. but in 2021, yeah. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the guests started coming on, and they all said, well, I'm doing the barbell approach. I'm like, what the, what's the barbell approach? Like, it's just, it, so this, and last year, it was quality. I'm buying quality. I'm like, well, what? What's it mean? It's quality. Here? You know, like, it's just. I hate that. And what do you barbell it with? Junk? Right, I just don't <laughs> even know. Like, what are, what are you telling people? Like, it, it sounds just like you're telling them they should just go buy out a, a mutual fund and not give you the fees. Like, I mean, what, you know, it, but what happens is everyone was saying it. Last year, everyone was saying quality. Someone did mix it up and say high quality. <laughs> so, so you have to defend against that kind of stuff because it creeps in. And... And you might know what they're talking about, and you might know, but the person watching doesn't know. And that's the one thing you have to be on guard for, like something that might seem that you know, okay, I understand what this person's saying, that maybe, particularly if it's jargonous and if it's bullshit, like it's, it's just a fake answer. Like it's just, you know, honestly, it's, uh, everyone's doing the barbell approach. Uh, and how are you going to outperform the market? Because really the, the things that you're telling me sounds more like, um, you know, you should be running a, you know, well, you wouldn't be running a passive fund, but, you know, some people should put their money in a passive fund. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, when we started the show, that was one thing that we really sought out, too. And I don't know if we're still accomplishing it or not, but it was to explain things, right? To not let our guests come on and use jargon. If right. so, we would pause them. We would say, you know, define right. that. Right. Or I would interject and say, this is what this means, right. too. And you should do some work on this. And by the way, that can launch into another topic, too. And so I, I think that's important because there is this intimidation, right? And it's like, well, 
they speak this other language. Right. Um, a, a friend of, of, the, of, of mine said, I understand all the words you say when you go on television, but the way you put them together, it doesn't make any sense to me. And I'm like, they're all just English words, right? right, right. So what are we doing you know, that's, that's not communicating the idea, right? Right. That, that and um, television is even tougher because it's so small. And uh, people have learned how they kind of game it a little bit, particularly politicians and those kind of people. I mean, I've, I've interviewed people, and I, I'm, they've had their first five answers are their first five answers. They don't, I don't care, care what the question is. <laughs> okay? Their first five answers are their first five answers. It's, right? like, they, it's like Johnny Carson, right? right? They, Pulling it out. Some, some kind of, they hired yeah. someone yeah. to teach them how to go on TV, which is a huge, huge business, and what to say. And, they, and this person said, these are your first five answers. I don't care if the guy says, hey, you know what, looks like the sky is blue. At our firm, you know, yeah. <laughs> whoa, 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 you know, so the commercials, the canned answers. What I love to do with my guests, though, is I love to research. First of all, a step back. I've been bringing on a lot of people the last couple of years that don't do a lot of television. Um, because a lot of people who get in the TV thing, just most of the time they've hired someone. And they get in, you know, and a lot of the bookers don't really know. The bookers are very young. And they don't really know. So somebody calls up the booker. Hey, I got a guy with two billion under assets under management. It sounds like, oh, okay. You know, can you bring him on? And bring her on? And they get on TV. And then sometimes they get in the rotation, and uh, there they are, not saying anything. Every every once a week, you know. And their credibility. I know some some of these shows <laughs> says that they're on the show. Yeah, right? that's their credibility right, about right, it, right? Right. So, yeah. I mean, they invest for that reason, right? To, for that, but they're not yeah. offering the audience anything. They're getting something from the audience, which, but the audience isn't getting anything from them. Uh, so I like to go, my top five criteria, my number one criteria, I love people who write a lot. Number two, I, I like people who write and have great followings among their peers. Then I like people who have a strong, after that number three is usually social presence. Uh, you know, because it means that people are gravitating to their work. Um, there's a guy I, I, I bring on a lot, and he went from like 50,000 to 300,000 Twitter followers in the last year, you know. But a lot, you know, but smart people, right, you know. And, um, and then, you know, there's, there's the, the thing, because we are a driven, our, my business is driven by ratings, right, so they have to have a little bit, they don't have the most charismatic person in the world, but, you know, just brings, I got to find a way to bring something out of them. So usually when I bring them on, I've already kind of, I've read some, a lot of their work, and I kind of know where they're coming from. One of my techniques, for those, if I look at a couple of the clips that they long-winded, is I, I actually start their answer for them so they don't go astray, because I don't have a lot of time to mess around. The other people I hate are the ones who repeat the question. Yeah. <laughs> Taking yeah. up that precious yeah, time. Yeah, 2022 <laughs> was a tough year, one of the worst years in history for bonds and stocks. I mean, what are you looking at for 2023? Well, you know, 2022 was tough, right? Bonds were down, stocks were down. Yeah, I just said that. <laughs> it's like, you just wasted 20% of the interview. Yeah, so there's all these little things running around. And it, and it really happens, I can tell you, it's a lot of pressure. It really happens a lot when you do political interviews uh, because they have an agenda, the top five things. Also, they have a way, it depends on who they are, but some people just come on just to wreck the whole thing. 
uh, you know, I call them kamikazes. <laughs> so, you know, so, That's that Air Force training, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I, I feel in a lot for, for Neil on a Fox News channel. And, you know, we always try to keep it fair and balanced, and there's always like a, a Democrat or two. And I just feel like there's a room full of kamikazes, like the young Democrats, they just sit on just directly interviewed. Hey, we need someone at Fox at 4 o'clock. They go down to the kamikaze room. Pete, you ready? <laughs> All right, what am I going to do? Just mess up the interview, say anything, but don't answer the ta- question. Are, are they the ones taking that elevator when the nuclear strikes <laughs> yeah. come in, right? <laughs> so it's, it's, so there's a, so many different variables. At all times, though, in the back of my mind, I'm, I'm hoping that the audience is getting it. Yeah. Because I got to be careful, you guys got to be careful that you get it, but they may not get it. And, and so it's, it's less about the gotcha stuff. I don't care about the gotcha stuff. I care more about, hey, listen, we're all learning. You know, I mean, the question right now for everyone is, you know, maybe there was something you learned in 2022 as someone who's been in the business 10, 20, 30, 40 years. So that's the main thing is to just always represent the audience and and try to make sure that their time is valuable um, and that these people aren't blowing smoke. So based on that, who's uh, some of your go-tos? Who do you think does it so well that you have on as a guest that has good information concise and you know can convey it well and just gives you the gives it in the way that the audience can understand i'm working really hard with my booking team and i'm focused on the a1 guest and the d block guest because the a1 starts to show off right i usually want to have a solo guest a1 to kick it off and then usually with the tv thing it can start to wane mid-show so i need a d block middle of the show guest to re to re-spark it again and so well, that's halfway through yeah Is that right? okay yeah. yeah so usually like a1 someone like at yard denny you know uh, uh you know just a lot of credibility obviously prodigious writer you know they do a lot of their own research former um, servant show guest yeah if we may <laughs> repeat, <laughs> repeat, a little bit. repeat uh yeah. two times yeah. i've had uh, lance roberts is someone i started bringing on a lot okay. in the last year yeah, he's out, of tech, he's out of Texas, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. he is um, absolutely phenomenal. So haven't had him on, that's uh, for the list, <laughs> but I did do a show for them. So okay. we did the other way around, bro, for them. Yeah, yeah Lynn Alden. Former uh, Sherman Show guest. Yeah, Here we go. Yeah, I, yeah. Feel, I feel like you teed this Have you had Alf on? No. no. Uh, okay. Who's Alf? Alf, Alf, Alf uh, like Pecl- the, the, Okay. Uh, he Difficult is. to pronounce, yeah, right? Real hard. Don't call him. You know yeah. what it is? I get his name right once out of every three times he's on the okay. show. So we're okay. He seems okay with it, so yeah. that's fine. I was thinking alien life form after we had this whole like space. <laughs> yeah, but there's a bunch of them. There's, there's a yeah. bunch of them. But A1, uh, it's got to be, again, someone who almost checks all of those boxes I was talking about. Uh, you know, because I like to kick it off with a sort of my own little pre, you know, my little, you know, whatever, you know, setup kind of thing. And, um, and then go from there, set the tone, if you will. Um, and usually in, uh, after I do the A block with the current of stuff, you know, I'll do B, which will be one of the schools, you know, like option school. I've cut back on that because the market's been kind of sideways and you know, we're kind of saying the same breakout over and over again. It gets yeah. like, it's getting kind of boring. Uh, <clears throat> um, and then, you know, I kind of do my stuff after that with economic data, social stuff, geopolitical stuff, right around, right after that, and then get back to markets in the D block. Yeah, so. Okay, well, I think we're at the D block right now, so (laughs) it's time to transition here. So how do we make money in 2023? What is Charles Payne thinking about? What are you looking at now? Most telegraph recession in history is what we're talking about the deaths today, right? Um, Typically, those 
you know, when everybody's on the same side, right, doesn't right, seem right. to play out. Lots of negativity out there. Um, people got it handed to them in 2022. Um, what are you thinking about here? What, what are you trying to relay to your investors except rule number one, which is you just have to invest, right? Right. Although being in the market doesn't always mean being 100% vested, right? So uh, I know like going in last year was the most amount of, the largest amount of cash I asked my subscribers to have uh, in, in uh, 30 years of doing this, you know, doing my business, my subscription business. Uh, and people were frustrated. You know, sometimes people get upset. They want to do something, right? And I always kind of remind them of Cool Hand Luke, uh, one of my top ten movies. Or sometimes nothing's a real cool hand, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and every now and then when someone's really pissed off, I say, tell you what, two days ago, give me five stocks you wish you bought two days ago. I uh, can't do it. All right? I mean, you know, it's, 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 so I think, even though I am contrarian, I think, my approach is, 70% of my approach is sort of fundamental, 20% is technical, and 10% is behavioral. I personally don't think I gave enough credit to behavioral in, in a sense that, you know, it, it really was, you know, when things were bad, things were really, really bad. And it didn't matter the charts, it didn't matter the fundamentals, none of that mattered, right, if everybody was selling. And so... I do believe there's some amazing opportunities out there. I'm looking for a year where the first half starts off sort of shaky uh, initially as we try to get a lay of the land. We'll see the job support, get a few of these economic data points and maybe some FOMC uh, meetings. But I'm looking for a big, big rebound at some point this year. And, and I think initially you want to be sort of you know, defensive-minded about it, per se. Uh, you know, quality? We're, over, yeah. <laughs> we're overweight industrial yeah. names. Okay. Yeah, quality yeah. And, and high quality. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty soon, uh, the new name for junk and high yield is going to be poor, poor quality. Poor quality, <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> but as you think about that, and you, and you talked about that 70-20-10 kind of mix with everything, too. Um, you know, you said you didn't attribute enough to behavioral. Well, one, one way I think about trying to model behavioral at times is, Think about the money flow, right? We do a lot of work too of like just looking at flow data, what's happening in demand, whether it's institutional RFP demand, like when they're doing the request for proposals, right? To try to hire managers. And there tends to be a lot of group think there at times. Um, you follow, you know, ETF flows, mutual fund flows, stuff you can get every day or at least monthly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so um, how much weight do you put to that as well? Because that's really what drives the directionality of markets in a very short-term period. I put a lot of weight into them, but you know there was just it, it, there, there was still at points pretty strong flows. Uh, you know the flows didn't match the sentiment. Uh, this was the last year was the first year ever where bullishness didn't go above average, not a single week in the history of the uh, uh, AAII sentiment read, not one single time. I mean, that's a huge contrarian. That's, that's very bearish, right? I mean, that's like, it was one of the most bearish years ever in sentiment, but there was still pretty strong flows into ETFs overall. Mm -hmm. um, and so, it, you know, the, the sentiment part of it was really tough because people were saying one thing, but they didn't necessarily give up. We didn't have that capitulation moment, really, that everyone's looking for. But with some of it, the change of the vehicle too, like from a mutual fund to an ETF, we saw some a lot of it. Of that yeah, last yeah. Well, year that, and that's been going on yeah, too yeah. for a while too. There's yeah. no doubt about that. Yeah. You know, people dumping those mutual funds and, and, and getting ETFs. But I still think net net it was it was more inflows yeah. overall. So, uh, which sort of belies again 
the, 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 some of the key sentiment reads. Uh, and um, uh, even, you know, stuff you might get from the Michigan Sentiment Report or the Conference Board and th those things. So, Which those have been disasters, right, for the last, like, 18, 20 months. Like, you look at the consumer side. I mean, you'll get small little upticks here and there, but it's like, are the series broken or just are people broken? Right, it feels like it from the surveys that we're looking. I all think the, the wild card is yeah. all the cash that was pumped into, into mm -hmm. so that that the, the the fiscal stimulus especially. I mean, yeah. just think about between the Federal Reserve and and fiscal stimulus between the two administrations, eleven trillion dollars. I just, I think that changed everything in terms of how things work. Typical indicators. Um, and I don't know that they're if they're broken. I don't think they're broken long term, but it's. It's a lot of cash. I mean, just so much cash and getting paid not to work. And although I think the Fed and and, and the economists are over are overstating it in the sense that you know, if the Fed is waiting, for instance, for uh, so-called excess savings, which I think is an oxymoron. I never heard of that one. Like it's either you got I'd savings. Or you I'd don't. love to have excess savings. <laughs> yeah. you know? But I first heard it. First time an economist said it. I said, "What the hell is that?" Yeah, I'm like, "Find that." What the that. is yeah, excess yeah. savings? Yeah. <laughs> I never heard of that one. You got extra savings? Yeah. I mean, I was like, damn, they didn't tell the brothers about this one. <laughs> like, Y'all got excess savings. Yeah. I got to call the truth. Yeah. Yo, they got excess savings. What? They must have took ours, <laughs> you know, right? What the hell is that? Yeah. I mean, that came yeah. up, though, in the recent meeting. Right? We, like, actually, is the we actually of had that, that debate around the table. We were talking about it, and we said, how in the hell do you define this? Yeah. Right? So we were the a little Fed, slower. The Fed has a definition yeah. for it. The Federal Reserve has yeah. some definition well, for it. For they, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they do have a definition for it, but then Except within within that excess savings right now, the four four quartiles, um, almost all of it's in the top twenty five percent. There's a little bit in the second twenty five percent, and the bottom half is it's almost all gone. And it, and, it, and it came about via the stimulus packages, so the stimmy checks. So those are almost all gone. My great fear is that the Fed's looking at the overall picture, like these economists. Well. There's still 1.4 trillion in excess savings, yeah. But these people aren't going. If you're trying to make them buckle, and they got their excess savings through savings and work and wages, what are you going to do to them to, to to drain this from them, while you're destroying this bottom half of the country? And this is the wild card for me with the markets and the economy, the so-called soft landing, and how much are they willing to destroy all of this? Uh, and I'm I'm very worried about it, very worried about it. So. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm going in very cautious, um, making my list, checking it twice, re erasing it, <laughs> fixing it, redoing it. Uh, I, you know, I think the opportunities, I think China's going to be a big opportunity. Uh, I think China's going to be a huge opportunity. Uh, I'd love to see Xi go back to talking about taking over the world economically instead of militarily like he did at the last Congress. Um, and I think he might, you know, just even though he was able to pull that extra coup, uh, the last uh, gathering, you know, every every leader, you know, listen, uh, number one market for Rolexes and and, and and Rolls Royces and all those kind of things. And he didn't. He promised that wouldn't happen. It did happen. But I don't. I think also he can't put the genie back in a bottle. I think every everyone there wants some some prosperity to a degree. You know, I always said if you take someone off a bike and put them in a car, you ain't never putting them back on a bike. Mm -hmm. You know, um, so. <clears throat> So I think um, I, I think there's going to be some huge opportunities. This I think there's going to be some big, big. I'm just my only question for myself is how nimble do we have to be? 
Last year, I ended up being a lot more nimble than I normally would be. You know, stocks I would have normally bought thinking I would hold them for three months, maybe six. I'm still in them eight months later, nine months later. And most of them, I'm down. So, You're an investor, uh, not a trader. Right, right. And, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. So, and, you know, and, you know, how, you know, I, at, the, at one point last year, I started to, I just became more nimble and I started taking, you know, profits, good profits over short periods of time. That was not necessarily in the, in the model of, the, of, my, of my service, but I took what the market gave me at a certain point. And in part because of the behavioral things, which are, are sort of out of whack right now. And, uh, you know, these, uh, I mean, Tesla would be probably an extreme example of that, but just, the proverbial snowball that's become a roller, a, a snowball, a boulder, and now it's just, and you know, it's gone into total freefall. Uh, selling begets selling. Is it one of the oldest axioms on Wall Street, and it's been working like a charm. Yeah, but it didn't for so long, right? It, it was, did it was for so long. Buy the dip, right? right? Yeah. Was the other side, Last year right? was the worst year for buying a dip, I think, in six decades, something like that, since 1959, some odd, obscure year like that. Yeah. All right. So, lastly, to change that view of the nimbleness, and you're talking about the opportunity, what would you need to see? What are you? It's what's on Fed. your dashboard? I yeah. just hate to say it, man. It's all about the Fed. Yeah. It's all about the Fed. Um, we had Jay Powell 1.0 when he came in. Not a trained economist. Um, kind of went by the book, so to speak. Had an amazing uh, track record of tanking the market every time he spoke. Did right? it? I mean, right. he put his foot in his mouth every time he spoke. Yeah. He just would say crazy things like, I, we don't know, huh? Like, my man, make something yeah. up. Yeah. Talking about someone who needed media yeah. training. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I was yeah. going like, uh, we can give you your first five answers and maybe you won't kill the market. Because he... <laughs> So how long are you going to keep high Who knows? Who knows? We might keep, yeah. I don't know. Like, Pro <laughs> problem is they asked like 30 questions in those press conferences. So the five answers aren't yeah. enough, you know. But because uh, I remember one, I think like October 2018, whatever, he had one of his interviews. It was like, oh boy, we're in trouble. <laughs> uh, but then January 4th, 2019, he also gave a speech that introduces the Powell 2.0. The Jay Powell that wanted to help society. The Jay Powell that acknowledged that Fed policy, um, you know, helped rich people, didn't hurt, didn't help poorer people, and that also, like for instance, their, just say their target unemployment number would be four percent, but within that four percent, for Hispanics it might be seven percent, and for Blacks it might be nine percent. So here was a Jay Powell who acknowledged that, you know, when we think we've hit a, a certain point, we could run a victory lap. Maybe we can't because not all Americans have participated. Now, it's easy to debate, can Fed policy fix some of that stuff? I don't think the Fed should be trying to do that. I'm not a huge proponent of the Fed. I don't think a lot has changed since the Federal Reserve Act in 1913. They didn't smooth out the business cycles. They haven't stopped recessions. And we've had a couple rough patches. So the promise of the Fed, they never lived up to it. Uh, and I think they've made things so hard from here on out. I don't even know how you can even truly ever, ever invest in the stock market without being able to game the Fed. Uh, because of all the money they put in, you know, before it was less than a trillion dollars. You'd have asked people in 2007, you know, what's the max? Two trillion, three trillion? No one would have said nine trillion. You know, the balance sheet is, it's, it's, you got to believe it somewhere, and I'm not smart enough to know that somewhere and there's like a Jenga, someone's going to, one day, one of these things just, you know, but. I remember that 700 billion when it was announced too, at, at, you know, back in 2000, late 2008, early 09. I think it was probably early 09. It was just unfathomable. It's yeah. like you watched it skyrocket on the balance sheet, and it was saying, "Well, can you do this yeah. one? The legality of it, but what are you doing?" Right. 
right? Uh, now you can't even see it on the chart when you look back. Right. Yeah. It's still blip. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and like this whole quantitative tightening thing, I'm sure they have some number in their mind that they'll never get to it, you know. Uh, they'll be cutting sooner rather than later. And, uh, and that dictates when I'll get more aggressive. Unfortunately, it's not, it shouldn't necessarily be that way. It's made investing harder. And I think to a certain degree, people are going to have to be more nimble from time to time and more defensive from time to time than just simply putting money in, uh, and, you know, blindly putting money in and hoping that it works out. But, but in fairness, wasn't it too easy for a while? Maybe that's what the benefit of hindsight. It never feels easy when you're yeah, in the moment. That's right. But wasn't it kind of too easy for a while because of the policies they created? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm saying they changed it yeah. either way. That's yeah. what I'm saying. There's going to be times when it's going to be very easy again. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> you know, once they correct the economy and it's in shambles and they start pumping the free money again and... You know what? If you if you love Meta at three hundred, you got to buy it at eighty, right? Or whatever the numbers are. You know, it's it's going to be easy again, or it's going to feel easy, and people are going to feel brilliant until then until they realize that you know maybe it would have helped if they learned how to read an income statement. Uh, you know, um, but and that's the, but that's the cycle. I'm saying that it's it's kind of sad, but it is what it is. It's the industry that we're in, and it's even with the data and the way they interpret it i you know i i hate the the jobs report the u3 unemployment numbers just drives me crazy i want to scream you mean you mean a trillion people left the labor force so and the unemployment number went down because of that and that's a good thing that's a sign of a healthy economy when people don't have enough faith that they can even find a job i mean you know just the data that they use and the methodology is just it's all backwards it's all backwards and, and but you, you can complain about it, and you probably should, but you also have to be able to adjust to it. Yeah, I think, I think that last uh, statement there is important. Like, no matter how much we want to complain about it, we don't like it. We've got duties to our clients. We've got duties to ourselves. And you got to figure out how to, how to, how to survive the game. Right? Yep, absolutely. So with that, Charles, thank you so much for Thanks your time today. Thanks a lot. Today. A lot of fun. This is great. It's great to really get into your psyche, to learn more about your personality, the background, great, humble beginnings. And you know, now you've achieved the apex of making it to the Sherman show. So, so thanks I again. don't know where there is after this. <laughs> yeah. Maybe yeah. I can still get to the NBA. Yeah. Yeah. Who yeah. knows? I mean, get like, a championship we, ring. We got a crypto.com <laughs> arena down there waiting for and you. And I know the Lakers ain't there what they go. used to be, so. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but that said, there's one part of the show I forgot to do, and it's Sam's favorite part of the show. Right. So, Sam, why don't you introduce Charles to our favorite part of the show? All right, Charles, my favorite part of the show, it's called Sherman Says. It's where I'm going to offer a series of alternating prompts between you and Sherman to elicit a top-of-mind response. Uh, you brought it up earlier, so I'm going to hold you to it, or try to hold you guys to it, but uh, one word response to uh, my prompts thanks. here. So, All I say is thanks for that. Yeah, so yeah. we're going to give the first one as the example to Sherman for austerity. Hmm. He's going to break in on this first yeah. one here. Yeah, so. I've, done, I've already broken. <laughs> um, Love to see it. All you know, right. we just we just can't do it. You know, we can't do it. So I'll stop. All right. Sam's always upset when I want to elaborate. All right. One hundred and eighteenth Congress. Can I curse? No. Of course, of course. <laughs> it would be very Boop. American to do here's, so. Here's, yeah. here's my one word answer. Boop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
It just keeps going. Oh, ED is at the end of it, though. <laughs> yeah, well, I, right now in real time, we've seen four votes, and um, McCarthy's lost all four times as of now. Each so. time, so. So we'll see. Yeah. We'll see what we get. All pivot. Coming maybe later than you think. Financial literacy in the U.S. Awful. Federal debt. Awful. SBF. <laughs> Asshole pawn. <laughs> I'm sorry, I had to throw like a the couple more in there. Too, yeah, yeah, especially. Yeah. Contrarian. Important function to the market. Military discipline. Uh, vital. Favorite movie. Wow. There's no wow movie, is there? Could be. Somewhere out there. I'm going to go with Rocky Four today after hearing all this stuff about Russia. <laughs> What's that? Yeah, it is four. I always, oh, we always have, we have this conversation. You think it's three. I always think that's it's three. Hogan. That's yes, right. That's yeah. right. All right. Yeah. Puss in Boots. Great movie. Great. All right, that wraps up the yeah. Sherman Says portion. I did caught that part on the Twitter. So oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't come up with Puss and Boots out of anywhere. So. Yeah, no, it was, it was great. It was great. It was great. Yeah, yeah, I think I read that, too. You were saying that you didn't expect it. To, you, mean, you were disappointed. You, you thought it was going to be horrible, and then you came out like, pleasantly uh, It was really great. I was like, oh, man. man. I think that says just set expectations. Right? Yeah. It's all right. performance relative to expectations. It really is. Charles, what a pleasure. Thanks Thank a lot. Thank you, sir. Thank, Thank you very you, much. Appreciate, Appreciate it. And everyone, that's the Sherman Show for the first episode of 2023. Thanks for tuning in, and we will be in touch soon with more guests coming throughout the year. Send us your uh, recommendations and anyone you'd like to see on here so they can also achieve the apex of their career <laughs> like Charles. So, as I move on to the NBA. Yeah, as, he, as you know, he's down there in the purple and gold. And um, you can hit us up at shermanshow at doubleline.com, or you can hit us up on the Twitter at shermanshowpod. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll see you in a couple weeks. The audio presentation represents Double Line's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the expressed written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. Liability, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2023, Double Line Capital.